0: Uh, So that was the talk. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, The three of us were talking over all the different ways that uh, Dharma talks can be presented, uh, different styles. Uh, Some people don't give Dharma talks. Uh, Matthew was talking about one of his teachers uh, who uh, uh, basically said, do your best, now do more. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) Um, And some people talk for a very long time. Uh, Some people use elaborate notes. Uh, Some people don't use notes at all. Some people come in and just start talking. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with Krishnamurti, um, he said he never planned to talk and didn't know what he was going to say until he got up and started talking in front of hundreds of people. Makes me think of Larry's uh, story about the Walendas. Um, the benefit of a Dharma talk is that even if you fall off the wire, not too many die from, you know, Dharma talks, either giving or receiving. So uh, we'll hope that that's the case tonight. Um, I'm going and it was interesting uh, trying to get this talk ready or just thinking about it. Um, usually I'm able to find something that I sort of settle into over a period of time. And this one kept bouncing me off. Um, I mean, I knew what I wanted to talk about, uh, but each time I approached it, I found I couldn't approach it. Um, And so what I found myself in relationship with and working with was, how do I be with something that feels unapproachable, Um, an interesting practice? So what I'm going to try and feel my way into here a little bit with with you all um, is what Larry was talking about so eloquently last night, relationships. Um, It's always been a little surprising to me that uh, more time doesn't get spent, not just talking about relationships, but the the value of relationship as practice uh, and how how to work with that as practice. Um, As far as I can tell, everything is relationship. There's nothing that's not in our life uh, the movement of relationship. Uh, Right now we're in relationship with uh, the floor we're sitting on, uh, with the uh, temperature in the room, uh, with our own bodies, with hearing, uh, with the sound of voice, uh, with expectations. We're always in relationship. We cannot not be in relationship. And yet, it, um, it, it's a bit like the, you know, when we talk about the, the, uh, the um, uh, a, a sila, samadhi, and panya as the sort of three uh, legs holding up the stool of our practice. I've come to see this as a bit like a card table. Um, and, you know, card table is a square thing and it has a leg on each side. And for me, uh, if, if we don't really learn how to work with relationships as our practice, as a, as a way to liberate ourselves from suffering, uh, as a lay, way to liberate ourselves uh, as a way of opening into the unconditioned, it's like having a card table with three legs on it. And it's fine until we set something on that corner where there's no leg and then the whole thing dumps over in the floor. Um, at least that's been my experience and my guess is I'm not alone in the room in having that experience. Um, so the, the, an essential piece of this and it's something that we all keep coming back to and you'll hear it in various ways over the course of this week is relationship is practice. Relationship is a mirror that reflects us back to ourselves. Um, And so why is this so difficult? I mean, if this is really the substance of our life, uh, moment by moment, we're always in relationship with a person, place, or thing. We cannot not be that. Um, And we're sort of co-created in that moment, in that relationship. why is it so difficult? I mean, why why is meeting the present moment in relationship so persistently challenging for us? You know, such a source of disappointment, suffering, frustration, irritation, fear. Um, why isn't it easier, for heaven's sakes, if we're doing it all the time? Uh, why do we have to work so hard uh, to get good at it? And by that I mean that there's a certain ease, that when there's difficulty, when there's, when there's the, the sort of, of pinch point in relationship, how is it that so often that becomes a problem, not just in our life, but a problem of our life, a problem of how we live? How does that happen? Um, the linchpin in this, as far as I can I can tell, is thinking. Uh, when thought is still, uh, there's no suffering. There's no because suffering is created by thinking. Uh, we talk about desire and wanting. Where does that come from? What feeds that? It's not just a, not just the urge to eat. You know, the body's hungry. There's not that, okay. there's a wanting and needing of food. It's what the mind does with that. That turns something that's quite natural into something that's a possible place to suffer, uh, to make our lives complicated. Um, So on the way to talking more about thinking, which I'll just get to a little bit tonight, because it's a very uh, complex proposition but there are a few things that I think are probably useful to say to begin to illuminate this piece because thought as a system is often what drives us. You know, we think that we're actually in control when in fact this powerful conditioned energy of thinking is driving us and we often don't see it that way. Um, So what happens in relationships? Well, one of the things that happens is we have expectations. And those expectations are, are pretty interesting, it seems. Um, basically, we expect relationships uh, to meet what I referred to earlier as the prime directive. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Star Trek, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for those of you who are not, check it out. It's, it's worth a look. Um, what drives much of our living is the uh, desire to be comfortable. We don't like being uncomfortable. I mean, right? I mean, am I alone in this? That I'm the only one that has a... Eh, I, it's like we, we turn our life, our relationships, our, our expectations lead us to treat things as though it should all be ice cream. Right? It should be satisfying. It, could be, it should be sweet. It should be nurturing. It should be available when I want it. Right? And basically, it should make me feel good. And life doesn't operate that way. And yet much of our expectation is based on that. We want relationships to be predictable, whether it's our relationship with the weather. We know the weather's not predictable. We know other human beings are not predictable. It's not rocket science, right? A little field research over the course of a few years gets us the data we need. Human beings are not predictable. Life is not predictable. In that way it's not reliable. And yet we keep expecting it to behave so. So when we have this expectation and Life shows up as it does. You know a person, place, or thing behaves in a way that creates discomfort over here. We have a couple of reactions. Often we want to fix it. We want to make it the way we want it to be. Um, Those of you in the room who have children have a lot of experience with this one. We always get the kid we need, often not the kid we want. And that's often the case in all of our life, so that when uh, you know, my partner, my boss, my colleague, uh, it doesn't turn off the light switches. I'm in relationship with somebody who doesn't turn off light switches or closed doors,? Okay? and it really, I mean, it really irritates me that he or she does that. And if they would just turn off the light switches and close the doors, I'd be a happy camper. Right? I would feel okay, I'd feel comfortable. I'm not comfortable if you're not doing that, but I am comfortable if you are. So what happens? I start finding different ways or exploring different ways to get you to behave in the way that I think I need you to behave. So if, if I can get you to talk in a certain way or you know make your bed in a certain way or pick up your towels that leave you leave on the floor or you, you don't spend so much time at the water cooler or you move a little more quickly through the, the traffic jam at the the dish uh, cleaning station, I'm okay. So basically what I'm asking is if you will be somebody else I'll be okay. Does it strike you that that's just a little crazy? Just a little bit? Because I don't know about you all but in a given moment I can only be who I am. I can't be somebody else. There have been a lot of times when I really wish I was somebody else. I mean we all look back over the course of our life and say wow if I could have done that differently I'd have done it differently in a heartbeat. And look back over the course of our lives and not even recognize who did that? How could that person have been so stupid, so insensitive, so thoughtless, so angry? Oh, that was me. Oh, wow. If I could have done it differently, you bet, I would have done it differently. Just like my partner who won't pick up the towels. If they could do it differently, they'd do it differently. Now, my, well, my sense of comfort, my sense of well-being, my sense of satisfaction, my ice cream is dependent on them now basically being somebody who they're not. Now, this doesn't mean, uh, you know, we shy away from having, you know, uh, honest conversations around things like, OK, you're leaving the light switches on and, you know, you're running up the light bill and we need to talk about that. But that that we need to talk about that is a a very different place to enter into a relationship, enter into a conversation than, I need you to do what I want you to do so I feel okay. So these expectations can really create a tremendous amount of friction. We ask whatever relationship we're in, if we're uncomfortable, to be something else. It doesn't work out so well. So what happens then? We, well, once we run out of our fix and our uh, sort of, of uh, imperial power and control thing that can be very subtle, right? I mean, many of us enter into significant other relationships knowing that there's stuff here that's going to be a problem. And we enter into it with the sort of hidden agenda is but i can i can get them i can get them to be different i can fix them right and then then we'll be okay and i think most of us have experience with how well that works out right? so we try and fix it we try whatever and at some point it doesn't work it just doesn't work and then we embark on a search <coughs> We search for a different job. And this is not this is not to say that that there are things that we need to leave. You know, it's not to say, oh, it's a genuinely abusive relationship, just practice with it. You know, don't try and change it. Well, maybe don't try and change it. I mean, but that there are skillful ways to, to work with that. That needs to come from a place of wisdom. Not of trying to fix it and Now that I can't fix it, I'll just go find another one. So we often embark on a search for something better. Something that will behave in the way that this job, this partner, this relationship didn't. And we take the same expectations of life being something other than it is into the next relationship, whatever that is. Again, I think all of us have plenty of experience in seeing that doesn't work out so well. So, what is it that moves this along back to thinking there are there are assumptions embedded in thought in the system of thought that um, Go largely unexamined for us, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna touch on a few of them. One thought, Krishnamurti said that his opinion was that humanity took a wrong turn somewhere along human development, and it's it seems pretty clear that it has to do with the the use of thought as a tool in the service of survival and thought as um, uh, something that can sort of fix things that is applicable in all realms, thought assumes that it can do well everywhere and in everything. It assumes that the problem that it created, it can sort, it can sort out on its own. Right. Um, someone told this story um, and I know probably most of us in here don't employ gardeners so just go with the metaphor here if you will. Um, you hire a gardener and uh, you want them to take care of your garden. So you come home taking care of the garden. That's great. This goes on for a week or so. You drive home and, and they've finished the garden. Now they're cleaning up the garage. Well, you didn't ask him to do it, but it's all right. It's okay. Um, and this goes on for a while and you come home one day and they're inside and they're, they're cleaning up your kitchen. Okay, it feels a little intrusive, but it's okay. The kitchen looks good. Um, and This keeps going on and you, you come home and they're doing your bills, okay? which means they got a hold of your credit card. This is a problem. But you know, a few weeks go by, you come home there in bed with your partner. <laughs> Oops. You hired them to take care of your gardener, they were a great gardener. Okay. But it, when it comes to these other realms, that's not its place. Thought is wonderful at pulling out a fragment of the whole. Working with it, trying to understand it, but it gets confused. It thinks that fragment is the whole thing. You know, we, we take a piece of behavior from a person and we say, I don't like him or her. Not even really knowing what's going on there. Is it that, I, that this, be, this behavior is who they are? Well, that seems a little simplistic. And What does it mean that I don't like it? Does it mean that I'm uncomfortable and I want to get rid of that? Or is there something wrong with them that I'm feeling this way? And so thought can get a hold of that fragment and do some very unfortunate things with it. Thought imagines to itself that it's describing external reality. that what happens is that there's a perception, there's a registering at eye, ear, nose, touch, whatever, one of the sense doors, that registers in a particular way. There's a resonance, right? I mean, this is, this is something you, most of you are familiar with. There's a, there's a resonance of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then things begin to unfold and get unfortunately interesting. Right? Because thought, based on memory and conditioning, in a very mechanical, reflexive way, gets involved. And starts telling a story about that perception. But it's not about the perception anymore. It's about the feeling tone of unpleasant. I don't like this, and all the reasons I don't like it. So we've gone from this bare perception, this, this intimate moment, and now I'm no longer in relationship with that. Thinking is in relationship with the story it's telling itself. And it's very reflexive. We think we're doing that. We're doing that as about as much as our knee is jerking it when it's hit by the hammer in the doctor's office. You know, I don't do that. Right? It's a reflex that gets hit and the reflex jerks. And that happens with all of us a lot. And we imagine there's an imagining that takes place. It's, it's really quite confused that now this description that's going on up here that's very mechanical, that's deeply conditioned and very reflexive is an accurate telling of what's happening in the relationship. Is that making some sense? I mean, is this, right? And and we wonder why relationships are difficult. We're not in them. We're not in them. We're in relationship with this stuff. We're no longer in relationship with this. And that's why when that is quiet or really seen, what we're left with is literally just this. And it's not nothing and it's not just sort of, you know, vanilla sameness. It's tremendously lively. I mean, yes, there's a sameness. There is a there's a ground that we all share. Nobody has any less of it or any more of it. It's called life. And it's expressed in the world of difference. And we move in that all the time. We miss this connection, this this non-separate life that we're expressing in the moment, we miss it when we're caught up in our story about what's going on. So thinking says to us, basically, I'm thinking it, it must be true, I'll keep doing that. That's also a reflex that's highly conditioned. And you see how far we've moved from thought as a as a tool in the service of survival, in the in the service of figuring out what we're going to you know shop for for supper for tonight. Obviously, not tonight. It's not a problem, but you know the sort of mechanics of daily living or artistic endeavors. But when it when thinking uh, comes to trying to sort out the problem it's all, cre- all created on its own, right? This now, thought has created this aversion, this story, whatever. The very same thinking tool that's created this is now going to try and figure it out and solve it. That's why these things seem to be problems without end. That's why we continue to see things done about the environment or about the economy or about poverty or about illness, etc. Those interventions are based on a fragment, and we don't end up even considering the potential problems that come from the solution that thought has come up with. I mean, look at ethanol. Um, so there, there's, a real, there's a real issue around thought trying to figure this out. First of all, life can't be figured out, have you noticed? It just, it can't be figured out. Uh, and thought is a woefully inadequate tool to do it. It doesn't mean it, ha- it does not have a place, it does. But when it's in the service of aversion, when it's in the service of reflexive, mechanical, deeply conditioned thinking, it's a blind person driving a car in a sandstorm without a windshield. I mean, it's really, I mean, you pick up any newspaper, right? It's not rocket science. Everywhere we see this kind of thinking applied, things get exponentially worse. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Uh, time's up. We'll get to it next time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and I really don't know. And, and that's the, you know, when we're on that edge of really don't know, there's, a, there's an edge of wonder. You know, when we see when we really see that the tool we're trying to sort our life out with is the very tool that's creating the mess, then we have to ask ourselves, well that's the only tool I got. What am I supposed to do? It's the only one that I really, I really trust. And I see, wow, it's not only fundamentally untrustworthy, it's the source of tremendous sorrow and violence and suffering and unskillful living. That's the only tool. What am I to do? That's what we're practicing here. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do when we're in relationship with a body that's heated up, that's having gas from supper, that's having, you know, the shoulders, the back, the neck, sleepy, sluggish. You know, we're doing the little uh, what's it, the bird in the water thing, you know, the thing that goes forward and then bounces back up. <laughs> I'm sure that I've got some neck problems from years of that practice. Um, So we're in relationship with this and we can't get away from ourselves. I mean that's the that's the really awful piece around this. I mean if if we could give you, I mean those of you who've come back to this a lot you already know what you're in for. And it's amazing that as many of us stick to this work as do. Right? Because if we would say to you you're gonna pay a lot of money, you're gonna come here You're going to be told what your schedule is. You're going to be told when to eat and given limited options about that. And we're going to get you up at the crack of dawn in the morning and run you until the end of the day. And we're going to give you nothing to do except look at your own mind. You'd say, yeah, thanks. Not now. Talk to him. Talk to him. He can have my place. We cut off an awful lot of escapes here. And what do we do? We meet this uh, body. You know, our practice so far has been to be with the breath and the body as we find it, and sometimes not so satisfying. Right? Not so satisfying, pretty uncomfortable at times. Maybe sometimes really nice. You know, often in the first few breaths of a sitting, for me that's the best. <laughs> Can go steeply downhill after that. <laughs> uh, and that's great, you know. I mean, in some ways, uh, the more difficult the relationship, the more potential for the learning. That's something we don't usually want to sign up for. Okay? But that's really what this is about, you know. So we come into relationship with this body, with this mind. Um, we notice, you know, I don't like this. When's he going to ring the bell? Isn't he not? We've been at this a half hour. Is he not done yet already? You know, we heard this last night from Larry. What's he doing, saying the same thing again? You know, let me go walk. And then you get outside, right? And it's like 104 degrees. (laughs) You say, why couldn't we stay in the Dharma hall longer? (laughs) So the practice is we basically stop, look, and listen. We We begin to turn away from thinking. You know, we see it come up. And say, okay, well, the instructions are to come to the body and the breath and to just be with that and to learn to be steady with that. You know, not to move every time it itches or every time it's uncomfortable. To explore the edge of wisdom about when I really need to move based on what the body is saying, not the mind saying, if I don't scratch my ear, my head will explode. Because right? that's the kind of thing, in one variation or another, the mind says, "I can't sit. With, I can't sit another breath. I'll die if I sit another breath. I won't be able to get up. Oh my God, what'll happen? Somebody'll have to come and take me away. They'll have to carry. Right? It's like, can you sit with this another breath? Chances are, not gonna kill you. Right? But there's something about that we don't trust. Along the lines, we've learned to mistrust this enormous capacity to bear with, to endure, not in some sort of tough way, but a kind of tensile strength, kind of flexible enduring, flexible power, really, that we are. And somehow we've learned to mistrust that. We've learned to trust what the mind's saying about the body. And it's not, not reliable. And we often have to see that over and over and over and over again because it's so deeply conditioned. You know, there's a, there's a saying from the Zen tradition in China attributed to the Sixth Patriarch that, that one uh, moment of clarity and an ordinary person is a Buddha. One moment of, of confusion and a Buddha is once an ordinary person. And I've always loved that because it's, it's really, am I awake now? You know, is there clarity now? Uh, and even in asking that question, that, that question has to be preceded by clarity. You know, the moment we're, we're, we notice, there's a noticing that we're caught in this stuff, in that moment we're free. Completely, absolutely, unconditionally free. And then the the thinking will backfill that very quickly. So we see it over and over and over again. We wake up, fall asleep, wake up, fall asleep, wake up, fall asleep, wake up. It's kind of our nature as human beings. For some reason, we've, we've learned to trust the dream life of thinking. We wake up out of it all the time, but we get pulled back into it. And I guess we're doing it all the time, so it must be true. I mean, even though a team seems to make a mess out of my life a lot, it, it must be okay because I'm doing it. No, you're not. It's doing you. You know, we think we have choice and volition and all this stuff, it's, it's not so much. Not so much and as we begin to slow all this down and ask you to look at very simple things for extended periods of time there's the chance for things to clarify mind and body begin to settle you know the restlessness begins to abate a little bit Uh, the discomfort begins to settle a little bit and it it'll come back it'll come back that's okay the question is in what relationship am I to this now? There can be enormous discomfort, real pain, and no suffering. It's really quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. And yet, if we think the gold standard is no pain, discomfort, ice cream on demand, we won't. We, that won't show itself in a way that we learn to rely on. So the giveaway, the flag, the warning bell is, I don't like this. Okay? You make me. You make me. You know. You make me angry, or you know. I don't like the way you do this. Or, I'm. I'm really annoyed by that. That really annoys me. That's the signal for there's a problem, as opposed to there's a challenge. You know, life's asking me a question, how am I answering it with my engagement? When I'm saying, oh, the, the problem is out there, not in what the thinking is making about what's out there. That's the point of our practice. So every time one of these things comes up, it begins to become an alert bell right, for the practice of relationship. And how this relationship is mirroring the mind back to itself. It's not saying anything about the object. It's saying something about how this mind's operating that's getting in the way of seeing with clarity what's this what this relationship is. Then action emerges from that clarity and is much more likely to be congruent with what's actually happening as opposed to being based on what I think is happening. That one piece can make a world of difference in how we live day to day. And we all have, well, I'll speak for myself, I have multiple opportunities to practice it here with you all. Uh, And again, I think I'm not alone in the room in that. So the spirit of taking whatever is showing up in our life as the place of our practice. Uh, Up to now, it's been the breath and the body. And it can't not be everything else. right? You're always in relationship with something. We're using the breath and the body as a way to begin to stabilize some of this. And Larry will be opening up the instructions tomorrow uh, around some of this. And we'll always keep coming back to the same thing. What's the quality of this relationship? And if there's storytelling, can that be seen and turned back to justice? Very simple, as, as one teacher said in re, uh, answer to the question So, what's the most important thing of our practice? Only do good, don't do evil. The person said, yeah, Everybody knows that. He said, takes a lifetime practice to really do it. So thank you very much. And I think it's time for walking.